Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. In poultry, there was a competition in the um, after the Second World War in America, the chicken of tomorrow. So again, hundreds and hundreds of different um, poultry uh, types of chicken. This competition to try and find the fastest growing, um, meatiest bird results in two or three genetic lines, which produce the modern day poultry industry, which is owned by now just two companies. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Have you ever eaten a mernong or perhaps an ohiju soybean or perhaps a vanilla orange. Maybe you've heard of an orb lentil from Swabia in Germany or the Oloton maize from Oaxaca in Mexico. If you're anything like me, somebody who truly loves food and regards themselves as a bit of a food buff, you won't have heard of any of them. And to paraphrase my guest on the show today, food journalist Dan Saladino, of the 6,000 plant species humans have eaten over time, the world now mostly eats just Nine, three of them, rice, wheat, and maize, provide 50% of all calories globally consumed. And if you add potato, barley, palm oil, soy, and sugar, you have 75% of all the calories that fuel our species. As thousands of foods have become endangered and extinct, a small number of them have risen to dominance. And it's killing us. The lack of diversity on our plates affects our health and the systematic stripping out of crops adaptive mechanisms, the result of thousands of years of adaptations, renders them exposed to parasites, pests, and disease. But Dan provides a dose of hope. The Green Revolution completely changed our agricultural climate in a post-war world, but will rising food prices, climate instability, rising rates of chronic illness, and our crops vulnerability to disease force yet another revolution. Dan, if you don't know, is a food journalist and broadcaster. He joined the food program in 2006 and for more than a decade has traveled the world recording stories of foods at risk of extinction, from cheeses made in the foothills of a remote Balkan mountain range to strange red varieties of rice in Southern China. His book, Eating to Extinction, I absolutely love. It's it's now one of my favorite books. It's a journey through the past, present, and future of food. And it's almost like a love letter to the diversity of global food cultures and just a, a work of great urgency and hope. He meets the pioneering farmers, scientists, cooks, food producers, and indigenous communities who are preserving food traditions and fighting for change. The human history is woven through these stories from the first great migrations to the slave trade to the refugee crisis today. It's already won Fortnum and Mason Food Book Award of the Year 2022, the Guild of Food Writers Food Book of the Year 2022, and many, many more. You can also check it out 
by looking at all the links that I've put on the show notes on thedoctorskitchen.com. I really hope you're going to find this episode insightful, scary, yet one will have of hope at the end. Remember, if you're trying to increase diversity into your diet, make sure you check out the Doctor's Kitchen app. You can download that for free. You can check out all of our recipes and we're definitely trying to use as much plant variety as possible. You can also watch this podcast on YouTube. Make sure you do check that out. Go on the YouTube, just type in thedoctorskitchen.com and you'll be able to see me and Dan having a good old chat from the comfort of our own homes. And also check out the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter. Yes, every week I send you a recipe, something to listen to, something to read, something to watch. They're usually short, sharp snippets of mindfully curated content to help you have a healthier, happier week. You can check that out on thedoctorskitchen.com. For now, onto my podcast with Dan Saladino. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Dan, I, I really, I love the book. Uh, I've been Thank you. going <laughs> through it bit by bit. I, I just love like the sections of it and like it's made for people with short attention spans like me you just dive into like a particular topic and like you know find out some interesting tidbits of information it's brilliant i really want to get into it but i, I first want to talk a bit about your your background you you just mentioned you came back from sicily recently to to visit family right tell, tell us about your heritage yeah so my uh my my dad comes from the southwest of sicily and came over to the uk when he was very young. So he, he um, grew up in that post-war era where in, in which Sicily was extremely poor and there were very few options um, but to farm, which he, he didn't want to do. So he left when he was about 15 or 16, ended up going through Germany, Switzerland, and um, followed some of the older boys who'd settled in the southwest of England in uh, Bristol. So when I was growing up, most of our family friends were from this same Sicilian town called Ribera. Um, the, the hairdresser I went to, 
the restaurants we went to, the tailor we I, we used to visit. Everyone was from um, this this town. So when I was having my summer holidays from school, I would travel over sometimes with family, but mostly on my own because my parents were working. So I would have this um, insight into these two very different cultures: nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties Britain, uh, but also. Um, this Mediterranean island, which was almost like walking back a hundred years as well, because there were no supermarkets, um, everything was quite basic as well. But it was the first opportunity I had to walk onto a farm, and there was a completely different relationship with food as well. So we would sit around the table, and my Italian wasn't great, so um, I would hear these elevated, shouty voices, and it turns out they were all engaged in this really intense conversation around food. And so it was also a period in which, at a very young age, I understood that people could tell stories about food and have very strong opinions about food, and that they were engaged and interested in the history of food and the quality of food as well. So that background, that heritage has been extremely important, which is why it also features as a story in the book as well. So there's a very particular ingredient of a vanilla orange, um, which is low acid, high sugar, quite a sweet, refreshing fruit. And it's just an illustration really of the diversity of flavors and foods on the island. So I wanted to include that. And in that story, I also explained that influence the island had on me to start me off thinking about food in a completely different way. Mm, yeah. I, I, I mean, uh, one of the things, actually, I was going to get to this a little bit later. Uh, one of the many things I should say that I learned from the book was about how all citrus fruit has its origins in these three varieties. Um, the citron, I believe, uh, the mandarin, and there's another one that I forget, and maybe the pomelo, um, and how all citrus has sort of like come down from there. But like the description of of what you, uh, you you just said there um, just really does remind me of some of the discussions I remember being privy to when I was a kid. Um, my my dad comes from a farming background in north northern India, Punjab. Uh, as you know, there's a rich sort of agricultural heritage there, and um, everything would be discussed from the weather changes, the drought, the seeds, the variety of different crops the politics in between farmers, all that kind of stuff. It just, and that was, was sort of uh, it like instilled in, in, in me in a, in a very early age, actually, about the um, the storytelling around yeah. food, the politics around food. Which most of us are now disconnected from. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think if there's one sort of take home that I had even for myself is I'm so disconnected to food these days. I couldn't tell you any of these stories uh, that, that you've written about in the, in the book. And also that, that that citrus story does touch on one of the big themes, one of the biggest ideas, really, in the um, in in the book. Though, so, so uh, it, as well as that origin story of the um, of the almost like the biology of, of citrus, in that you've got these these big um, genetic groups that can then interact and create these hybrids and and this infinite variation that that is possible around the world as they cross-pollinate and create huge amounts of variety. They also all originate from one part of the world, which is northeastern India, 
um, Myanmar, southwestern China. It was a it's a biodiversity hotspot. And thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, there were indigenous people interacting with the wild um, fruits, and these fruits made their way out through trade and and migration, and then start to travel around the world. And what then happens is because of this um, ability to adapt, cross-pollinate, and also mutate, we end up with huge amounts of diversity, which is why I mentioned this so-called vanilla orange, which is a mutation so it loses a lot of the acidity but what i the story i tell in the book really is the way in which we have used science and technology to take control of that diversity and to focus in on very you know a really small group of um, varieties of all kinds of food um and so we've bent nature uh, to our will uh, for productivity. So we've gone for the higher yielding fruits or the ones that are most convenient to transport. And so what I'm doing is I'm celebrating that diversity that existed in communities around the world and that people pr- tr- um, prized. So the vanilla orange, for example, that now only exists on farms where you get family family farmers who want a collection of different plants and trees for their home table. Um, as a as a as a commercial activity, it, it doesn't work anymore. Um, so they've got these little um, pockets of diversity in their farms. And if you go through South Asia, it's the same with rice. So farmers will be growing a commodity type of rice to take to the market, but they will still, in some patches, be growing a type of rice that their grandfather, grandparents, or the great grandparents used to grow because of what they believe to be better flavor, nutrition, because it's more resilient. Um, they won't take it to the market, but that's for their table. And so the book is a celebration of that diversity that has been disappearing because of those commercial and agricultural pressures. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder if before we get into some um, chapters of, of the book and, and some of the examples that you've, you've laid out, maybe you can give us a, a bit of a brief history of how we got to growing food in the first place. I, I love what some of the opening elements of the book where you basically give a very brief history of, of food. Um, you know, 13 billion years ago, we've had the creation of the universe. Four billion years ago, you know, we have this fiery, volcano-ridden uh, earth. Uh, how do we get from, from there to, to growing uh, different types of, of grain, fruit, and, and cultivating it, which led to the, the, um, the increase in populations around the world? Yeah, yeah, because there are there are many different timescales that I try and introduce in the book, and I that the section that you mentioned is one in which I'm trying to just get people to start to think about and, and appreciate really the mind blowing inheritance really that does span back billions of years of biodiversity, or as some people might refer to it, agro biodiversity, agricultural biological diversity. So, um, and you know, I, I, I. Uh, make reference to the Cambrian explosion hundreds of millions of years ago when the ancestors of most life on Earth start to uh, appear. Uh, and then the arrival of grasses as well, wild grasses, um, just a, you know, a few tens of millions of years ago. Um, and, and, and then the crucial periods of in human evolution. So the idea that, you know, whether if you take two million years ago and the, the fact that we start, to, uh, you know, our ancestors... Um, in their different forms, start to work on, walk on two legs, and the way we interact with nature in a completely different way, 
and that that then um, becomes important in terms of our, you know, the way we forage and hunt. And um, I, I, the very first story in the book, um, and there's a chronology that does thread through the book of our our evolution and our relationship with nature. So the very first story is me spending some time with the Hadza in Tanzania, some of the last hunter-gatherers in Africa. And, and again, it's almost like the starting point because that um, lifestyle which they have held on to, or at least 200 members of this um, tribe in, in eastern Tanzania um, near Lake Yassi, is the is the oldest, longest, and most successful human lifestyle uh, to date. So um, you know the idea that we we only started farming, agriculture. You know we became agriculturalists ten, twelve thousand years ago. Well, you know that that follows on from hundreds of thousands um, of of uh, years as Homo sapiens, as hunter gatherers. And so I tell that story of the skills and the knowledge that the hunter-gatherers in Tanzania still have, which which would have been the dominant human story. Um, and then, yeah, 12,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent, which is southeastern Turkey into Iran, Iraq, uh, Syria, that part of the world, you, you get um, hunter-gatherers who are interacting um, more pers- purposefully with um, these wild grasses, uh, consciously and unconsciously selecting ones that um, are producing uh, more food, uh, more consistent, reliable food as well, which is how we then end up with domesticated varieties of wheat, barley, chickpeas, lentils, the so-called Neolithic package. And that really is a turning point because that then results in settled um, communities, uh, Food that can be stored uh, completely changes diets and also um, human civilization. So the very first cities emerge from those origins in the Fertile Crescent as well. And then what we see is these 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 populations spreading out around the world and these practices, so that farming really starts to take off and hunting and gathering disappears. And where it was wheat and that, those other um, ingredients from the Neolithic package in the Fertile Crescent. In southern Mexico, we have maize, a maize culture. Uh, in in China, um, the domestication of rice as well. All from these wild grasses, but they are the ones that provide the energy and the storable carbohydrate that then goes on to change life and humans, human societies as we know it. So, yeah, I, I think the history is really important because it does explain really our evolutionary history in terms of the amount of plants those hunter-gatherers would have been um, feeding from, the huge amount of diversity that they would have been exposed to through the seasons, and also the way in which those plants, as they've been domesticated and then spread around the world, adapt to different cultural uh, preferences and also environmental factors as well. So we end up with huge amounts of diversity of, of the same kind of food. Wheat, as it travels around the world, becomes hundreds of thousands of different things because it does adapt to different soils, uh, access to water, and so on. And that's why I wanted to tell that story. It's, uh, we all need to know that history. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's it's such an important um, anchor for a lot of people learning about food and the production of food and farming in general. A quick question about those different grasses: Would the um, the dominance of corn, the dominance of rice, and all the uh, all the different plant varieties have occurred simultaneously as the wheat dominance in places like? what we call now the Middle East, but the Levantine area, Jordan, Syria, those sort of areas around um, uh, that part of the world, would that be in concurrence or would it be uh, step changes afterwards, like a little bit further as as uh, humans um, migrated? It's pretty much concurrent. Um, so um, archaeobotanists are still doing a lot of work and making discoveries um about uh you know early forms of farming um but because of um mostly we think climatic reasons around the world these different populations in different parts of the world end up interacting with the grasses in this new um new way so the the earliest um evidence of, of farming can be found in the fertile crescent uh, maize and rice evidence appears later, um, but not we're not talking huge um, amounts of, of gaps in time. Um, so a few thousand years, but obviously in the big picture, I mean, it's pretty all, it's close together really in, in, in human history. And one you know, main explanation of that is because there were these climatic factors, which meant that that lifestyle, that practice, that source of food was becoming uh, more important to those um, small groups uh, that inhabited those parts of the world. Yeah, and and just to uh, zoom into the Hadza community, which is uh, obviously quite well studied. You know, it's it's very attractive for researchers trying to sort of um, figure out what the, the the ideal microbiota is and and what our diets have have been uh, initially shaped on. Um, what does a hunter-gatherer diet look like in terms of the general macronutrient proportions and uh, the predominance of meat? Because you've got a lot of diets like the paleo diet, the ones that comes to mind, and the low-carb diets that are sort of based on this idea that this is how we should have eaten. And I think there is a popular sort of perspective that it's actually quite heavy in meat rather than other plants what what does a diet that we've evolved and adapted towards actually actually look like from from what you've seen well i'd sum it up by saying it's diversity because if you're actually <laughs> i mean i didn't spend um yeah, I mean, there are anthropologists who spend years with the, the hadza um but obviously i did a lot of research and i was there and i, and I observed some of the practices and i and um there's a figure that's presented which is uh, around 800 different plant and animal species as their potential menu. Potential menu is really important because I think in most Hadza um, diets, they won't get anywhere near that, but that's, that's out there for them. And obviously that changes through the year as well as the, as the rains come and or there's the dry seasons. And that is also reflected in the amount of meat in the diet. So what, what we need to get out of our minds is this idea that they are, um, you know, Going through the savanna, hunting, and just predominantly eating a, a, a diet of, of of wild meat. Um, the reality is, um, they will um, eat what is available at any particular time of the year, and that might result in, for example, 
uh, particularly during the um, the seasons in which the animals congregate around the water holes and that they know the animal movements are more predictable, um, they will get more meat and they will feast on that meat and they will share that meat. That's the other thing about that. You know, meat is prized. Meat is valuable. It's not just something that is, is, is abundant um, all the time. And they will mostly eat the offal um, during uh, and, and shortly, I mean, shortly after the, the hunt as well. That would be the first thing that they eat because obviously it's very difficult to preserve. But also that that is prized as well, and they will share most of what's left over um, in terms of the rest of the carcass. Then when honey is abundant, they will go and um, find honey, and they will gorge on honey. Um, they will probably eat more honey than you are capable of of consuming, and then they might not eat for three days. And then they might stay at camp, and they will then become dependent on women who are going out finding tubers. So there is it, you know, in terms of the peaks and troughs of of eating, it's not as if they have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's the other thing we need to understand. It's just um, it huge amounts of diversity in quantity, availability, and and food types as well. And um, yeah, I, I, I. I found that fascinating, and then you will be with them as they will as they're walking through the savannah, and they will just stop and gather, and then just pick a few berries, and then just sit around and and you know talk for a few hours, and then maybe if they're lucky enough, they will go out and you know um, find a trail and and uh, you know hunt an animal. Um, but yeah, I mean it's that they. Uh, I think one of the things that I, I mentioned this quote in the book from Jack Harlan, who was a uh, a botanist saying why you know just pondering on this question of why did we give that lifestyle up because um there are many pitfalls of being a hunter gatherer but actually the the amount of leisure time and the intense labor involved in agriculture they're very different things and you can again if you don't you know if if you're not eating for a few days huge amounts of food picking berries feeding on a few available tubers you can get away with doing very little, you know, work and just socialising a lot. So, um, and then obviously the um, huge amounts of energy you'd get from a, a find of honey, which also includes larvae and crunchy bees stuck in the, you know, it's it's high energy, high protein, and you'd gorge on that, and that might last you for a, a quite a, a good period of time. And then all around them are these baobabs as well, which they would just crunch these these kind of the, the like the size small size of size of small coconuts crunch crunch them open with their foot and inside you've got this flesh which is it's like tasting a vitamin c tablet um and again lots of fiber um energy and uh yeah nutri- nutrients in there as well so yeah it's fascinating and actually i think it it does make you think about how adaptable we are and how our habit of these three meals a day and expecting that we, you know, saying that we should be eating 2000 calories plus or whatever, (laughs) they dispel all of that completely by these, again, this, this, um, these changes from day to day, week to week, month to month. Yeah. I I think I remember that quote in the book actually, uh, about how the, the hunter gatherers, uh, they, they, play as much music they're they're just as talkable they're just as sort of you know creative but they just work less hard <laughs> than your than your farmer <laughs> yeah 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 well to you know to tend to and, and actually that's playing out in real time so again this this did play out 10 12 000 years ago 
um, or over thousands of years ago. And, and, um, and part of the story of the Hadza is that the that world is encroaching on their wilderness. And there are farmers who are struggling with climate extreme extremes on the periphery of so-called Hadza land who are coming in with their cattle and trying to plant maize in places where it's not really suitable. But it it's almost as if these two worlds are colliding now, and um, and and what you you know the hads are being used, thinking why is it you would have to you know work this field hour after hour, day after day, and the risk of whether you will get a harvest when again they have this abundance or they have had this abundance around them. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like they live quite an intuitive lifestyle where they just sit down, they eat, they go on a trail. It's sort of like they go, they're being guided by uh, their senses and sort of the environment around them, which, are, which is very, very novel and compared to how we're living our um, lives today. And Millions of years of evolution and skills and knowledge passed on from generation to generation to the point where, you know, a Hadza child of three or five will know much more than we <laughs> we will about how to survive and 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 about wild animal behavior about different plant species um yeah, they are experts in biodiversity and i don't want to you know present it as some kind of idyllic lifestyle they don't have access to healthcare um you know if you fall fall off a tree as you're hunting for honey um the risk of in, in serious injury and death is very high um but what they don't suffer from is food related illnesses diseases um you know diabetes heart disease obesity and so on um so this is why i'm saying we need to think like a had so we will never be able to live that lifestyle or perhaps we wouldn't even want to and yet that i that idea of being aware of what's around us and the ecosystem and that level of diversity that should be part of diets is is something that we can take from their um i guess the fact that they've retained that human experience that most parts of the world have lost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's something that you mentioned there about the variety of uh, species and, and edible plants that surround these communities uh, are in the, you know, seven, eight hundreds. And I know there are thousands of species that we can potentially eat. But some of the um, some of the stats that you quoted in the book were pretty alarming in terms of the dominance of just a few types of foods that are in our diet. And, and a lot of people will think, you know, we have a diverse diet. We, you know, we, we have an abundance of variety of drinks and, and foods that we can consume. But in reality, it's just a few species. I wonder if you could talk to that. Uh, a bit, mm. that, that for me was, yeah. was pretty stark. Yeah. I mean, you will hear various figures hovering around six to 7,000 identical plant species um, from the likes of the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, that in human history have fed populations. And the story I tell in the book really is this succession of um, availability of of technology and increasing scientific knowledge, which um, I'll qualify here by saying is being quite reductionist because what, what that enabled us to do was to focus in on those plants, those small number of plants that could become 
um, highly successful because of the levels of productivity and the amount of calories that they could produce and that they could be stored and transported around the world, which is why from six, 7,000, we end up with around nine, 12 that feed most of the world, of which three provide you know, the world with more than 50% of its calories, and that's wheat, rice, maize, aka corn. So um, again, in the 20th century, because plant breeding science, the understanding of genetics really came to the fore, um, through plant breeding, we were able to focus in on those crops and improve them, in inverted commas, to the point where they were becoming you know, increasingly high yielding. Um, some of them could have disease resistance as well. And what you then get because of the artificial inputs as well, so the um, fertilizers that can be produced from fossil fuels, uh, pesticides, herbicides, that kind of thing, you can take the same plant variety, genetically ident identical pretty much, and take it to many other parts of the world and plant it there and displace all of that um, uh, diversity that existed because it had adapted to those conditions in the absence of those inputs and that science and technology. And look at where we are in the 21st century. So we have a you know huge amounts of calories. The world has enough calories. What we don't have is enough micronutrients, for example. Um, you know, we have, there are obviously problems of distribution, which means some people are going hungry. But we crack the problem of producing calories. But as our as our understanding of nutrition and health um, and the impact of farming on the environment increases, where you know it, that's why I say it's reductionist. It's, it was a short term fix based on simple science huge amounts of inputs, fossil fuels and irrigation, fresh water usage that delivered this big, big push of calories from a small number of selected plants. And I argue in the book, we need to go back in terms of that story and use the very latest science and technology to embrace a lot of that diversity that did exist, that had been kept and retained by farmers around the world. Uh, of those plants that were adapted to all kinds of different conditions, some of which we now need because, you know, drought resistance, for example, resistance to pests and diseases, and and bring it back, bring it back for our health and bring it back for the planet's health. Yeah, th there isn't a, a, a plant that I think tells the story of what you've just described there better than the soybean. Because it seems as if it's gone through that whole trajectory of what you've just described. You know, you've got this fantastic uh, crop. Uh, it's it's you know turned into tofu thousands of years ago. Uh, its heritage is incredible. You know, it's it, it's a it's a beautiful product from the point of view of the composition, its micronutrients, and then it's taken over to the States and a whole bunch of other things are, are sort of um, are done to it. And then it's become this, this uh, sort of poster uh, child for a, for a product that, you know, well, this is what we're, not what we should be doing with ingredients. I, I wonder if you could tell us that story of the, the Ohigu soy of Okinawa, because I, I think that, that really hit home for me. Yeah. So I traveled to Okinawa, um, you know, two hour flight south of Japan um, in the Pacific and I was there to visit what probably is the smallest soy uh, plot of soy in the world. Um, so you imagine, you know, all those vast um, hectares of, uh, you know, miles and miles of soy in 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 Brazil and the Cerrado and 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 
Argentina. Um, this was a tiny, tiny plot because what what um, Okinawa had was um, an adapted type of soybean, um, and one of the properties was that it was quite fast growing. So they would plant it, and it would produce um, the um, the bean. Um, ahead of the arrival of the um the rainy season and the insects that kill the plants so that again that's just an example of adaptation really of the farmers interacting with nature to uh, to identify something that was perfectly suited to producing food in a specific place um lots of factors unfold in terms of the um importance of that of that food but i mean as you say one of the key things is tofu so the uh, the plant itself and some of the techniques for converting the bean into this amazing silky protein uh, originates in China thousands of thousands of years ago. Um, and um, not only did, the, did Okina or the Okinawans have their own distinctive type of soy, they also had their own cooking style for tofu, um, which they call island tofu. Both end up going extinct in the 20th century, pretty much, because... Um, first domination by Japan, uh, Okinawa was its own kingdom for, for a, a very long time, uh, and then started to grow things that the Japanese state was instructing them to grow. And then in, after the Second World War, they were occupied, you know, they had Amer one of the biggest American military bases in the world, and again, their farming system becomes distorted by what the um, American influence on the island was. And this is when... <laughs> Earlier in the 20th century, you had these amazing plant explorers from the States working for the USDA, traveling across Asia, trying to find um, valuable seeds that could actually become part of the um, US um, um, agricultural economy. And so they come back with thousands of varieties of soy, they select a handful, and then they start to have a soy boom in, in, in the US. Um, which is used for protein, it's used for the oil, but also they were doing all kinds of incredible things with um, the bean as well, extracting from it for um, paint industry, solvents, all kinds of things. So this was a massive breakthrough in terms of industry, food industry and otherwise. And so you end up with the point of this expansion of a small genetic selection in the States. And um, in the 20, 20th century, U.S. becomes number one exporter of soy, bizarrely, really, back into Asia where the bean originated. So China today, Japan today, hugely dependent on soy from the Americas. And I mention the Americas more generally now because from the U.S. it also expanded into Brazil and elsewhere, which is a fascinating story uh, in, in its own right. But what what also happens is the soybean loses. Uh, the value as an ingredient in tofu becomes what the, you know one of the world's most important sources of animal feed because of extraordinary its extraordinary high protein levels and and that's what really helps the um the protein boom in the second half of the 20th century in terms of uh beef production even aquaculture towards the um uh the latter stages of the 20th century as well this this single bean which had been a, a you know such an important ingredient in vegetarian diets becomes the number one driver um of meat production and uh fish you know farm fish farming
the Blue Zones are super interesting. Um, and like you said, the Okinawans uh, are certainly part of that collection of populations from around the world. Uh, and they have a plant predominant diet. A lot of people have pointed out the the fact that they have this purple uh, uh, potato in their diet and stuff. But it's, it's going to be like the whole lifestyle elements, I think, that that uh, coalesce to create like a really healthy sort of environment for one to thrive in. But you couldn't make this up really, could you? I mean, you've got this incredible product that is now being grown mostly in the Americas. Uh, I, I, I read about the um, the predominance in, uh, in Brazil as well. Uh, being sold back to its uh, original uh, place uh, and also being used to um, feed livestock when it's a predominantly a vegetarian sort of source of, of protein. This, exactly the same is the situation with maize. Um, with the, you know, the American Corn Belt and, and, um, and Mexico. I mean, the it, maize corn originates in southern mexico and and the same story of the of of the plant arriving in the americas and then because of the application of science technology and the selection of a very small genetic pool from um what had um, been domesticated in mexico america becomes the number one a grower of corn and then by the end of the 20th century is exporting these dent, so-called dent corns back into Mexico, displacing a lot of diversity in Mexico. And because of the type of corn it is, it's being converted into the likes of um, fructose corn syrup and ending up in soft drinks. And, Amer- and Mexico becomes one of the most obese populations on the planet. Yeah, yeah. It's... Um... Yeah, it's horrible to think about it, and and also I hear I, I remember reading in the book about uh, the introduction of um, of weed killers like glyphosate. I think a lot of people, hopefully, are aware of the issues around glyphosate and Roundup, as it's known, Roundup Ready uh, soy, um, and the loss of the soy being uh, GM modified. I think it's ninety percent of all uh, soy in the US is 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 genetically modified. What do you have thoughts on on GM? gene editing in general would you sort of opt for um the original sources of soy if you were to choose to eat uh tofu as a as a uh, sort of um the main ingredient in your, in your diet like a lot of asian countries i mean i can understand again following on from that story of end of the 19th century into the 20th the arrival of our understanding of genetics and more scientific approaches to crop breeding there's a logical extension with the arrival of um, gene editing, transgenics. Um, and in a sense, you know, I've got nothing against the research happening. And, you know, I think everything should be explored. Um, I don't think it should be dismissed as a, as a potential, uh, you know, as something in the toolbox. What I do have a, a, a problem with is, is it being seen as a silver bullet? Because what you end up with is, Okay, we create these monocultures. We focus in on a small number of genetics. We plant them. They become ex- you know, vulnerable to disease. Um, they're, they're a driver in the destruction of biodiversity. Um, so that 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 more traditional form of uh, agriculture um, becomes problematic. So what do we do? You know, we come up with a fix using gene editing, for example. And we think that's it. We've solved it. And you know, with this new era of science, we just 
replicating the same problem of more monocultures using a new form of technology, um, which again will not resolve, um, will not solve any of the problems we're now facing with the biodiversity crisis, water shortages, um, you know, uh, lack of diversity in diets, and also it brings along with it the same this problem of concentration of power and ownership because of the technology which is an extremely expensive technology that most small poor farmers around the world will not be able to buy into apart from be recipients of the seed which they will not be able to keep and save and replant so yeah i mean again i'm not against i'm not anti science and technology i'm just i have issues with the reality of the way in which that shapes the food system yeah yeah no I, I couldn't agree more and actually just to give like an idea to the listeners actually about the sheer variety of all these different crops when most people think about wheat they just think about you know your traditional sort of stalk of wheat um but it, arthur watkins who you reference in the book he's collected thousands of different types of wheat in the post-world war one to sort of study and and you know maintain uh sort of uh um oversight of what what is what is happening to that area uh, of of research, uh, I understand that there there are a few people looking at the adaptive mechanisms within traditional wheats and sort of artificially putting those into new wheat to sort of again to to your point um, potentially creating issues in the future. Yeah, I mean, there's it, this is why it's so fascinating because there is so much happening. And there are so many reasons that this needs to be an area of research, and it really is. And governments and you know scientists are really engaged with this now because we we are facing serious problems. Um, but yeah, he, Arthur Watkins, and also be, you know just before him, the Russian botanist um, Nikolai Vavilov was travelling across continents collecting this this diversity. Um, and so, and Arthur Watkins was a fascinating character because. He had um, fought in the First World War, um, had seen in France a um, huge amount of diversity in, in the farmers' fields, and became obsessed with wheat. And when he came back to the UK and was, a, um, a, was based in, in Cambridge University, used the civil service network of, um, of the British Empire, really, to, to send people out into markets and farmers' fields and post him you know examples of um different types of wheat um which is a collection that's now being used by researchers um today looking for traits that we'll need um to combat um you know diseases and, and, and pests just to give an illustration of, of what what we mean by this wheat diversity so if you're a farmer today in britain and um, you want to grow um, a field of wheat, there is a recommended list that has been legally approved that you will be given. This might consist of around 10 different varieties of, of wheat, all of which are pretty genetically identical because they are um, the product of this post-war um, innovation in farming, which, which goes by the name of the Green Revolution. Um, so incredibly uniform genetically. But if you go into the Arctic Circle and down a tunnel into a seed vault called Svalbard, which is the backup 
um, or some people call it the doomsday vault, because that's where a lot of the genetic diversity of of of, of, of farming, uh, for, you know, saved from thousands of years of um, all these different experiments that unfolded around the world. They will they have more than two hundred thousand um, unique uh, accessions or samples of wheat collected from different parts of the world. So that, just think about that ten that selection of 10 that a farmer will get all uni- all genetically pretty much identical because they're modern wheat from a system and thousands of years of adaptation stored inside this seed vault in the Arctic Circle. And they look different, you know, they're different heights, different colours, grains look different. If you cooked with them, if you or if you milled them and cooked with them, they taste different, different textures. That huge amount of diversity is something that has disappeared so quickly. And, you know, in a sense, that's the, that's the asset. That's the real, uh, the, the really valuable inheritance that, that I wanted to write the book for, to, to actually say this diversity existed. We, we thought we were doing the right thing by, you know, coming up with these improved varieties and selecting and spreading them around the world. And what a mistake, I argue. What a mistake in terms of the vulnerability, the fragility in, the, in food security, but also what cultural vandalism, really, of all that adaptation and the, you know, the cultural preferences, you know, generations and generations of farmers and cooks that influence the selection and, and, the, and the diversity of, of, of those wheats and just apply this to every other crop you can imagine, from you know, maize to lentils to all kinds of different legumes. You know, it's the same story across the board. And and just on that point, Rupi, you know, they mentioned about where are we today? So now we have this frenzied activity of scientists now looking back at these collections to try and identify what are those valuable traits that have been lost from the modern varieties that we no doubt need. Because what we're finding is Climate extremes are impacting on these modern wheats that are like Formula One cars of farming. When everything is perfect, they will be amazing. When things start to go wrong in terms of climate extremes, water shortages, the arrival of pests, it all goes wrong. And that's what this um, genetic diversity gives us. So in a field of traditional wheat, it isn't just um, it's an older variety. It's actually a population of varieties of huge diversity that you know brings you know, throw something at it in one season N- not all of it will survive but some of it will because of the genetic diversity and again that's the that's the safety net we've lost in in ramping up yield and focusing on these formula 1 type um crops yeah yeah and and i believe um the the person who's credited with the green revolution, I think I believe it was Borlug, was he an American uh, gentleman? He um he actually warned against this, didn't he? He actually he sort of like raised the alarm bell early on and said, you know, we can't rely on on monoculture. Here we have these toys of the science and technology and the discovery of genetics at the beginning of the twentieth century, and there Borlug is this amazing plant breeder. And he's he's in Mexico. Um, there are American foundations who are providing funding and support to try and uh, fulfil his ambition, which was to try and 
um, make life easier for the Mexican farmers. Uh, they were struggling with d- crop diseases. Um, the yields weren't great, he believed. Um, and so he went, he embarked on this mission to try and improve the crop. And he did this by using diversity. So he, he took Mexican wheat, he took a Japanese dwarf type of wheat as well, and um, did this amazing job of creating a new type of wheat, which was short dwarfed, which means that it could take up the new um, new generation of artificial fertilizers without falling over. So, and they, they grew very quickly and produced huge amounts of grain and so successful that Borlaug's wheat by the 1960s were spreading around the world from Mexico into India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and then all around the wheat growing world, really. So um, he was successful. His, he won the Nobel Prize in 1970. Um, and he was motivated. I, I genuinely think he was motivated to feed the world or attempt to feed the world because there were concerns over famine in South Asia um, in the 50s and 60s. And India wasn't self-sufficient. A lot of people who criticized the Green Revolution would cite you know, the political, um, economic, global factors that influenced the food system at the time, that it wasn't just about crop genetics. However, um, the Green Revolution unfolds, Borlaug is celebrated, but at the same time, he is convinced that he has only found a short-term fix. That this way of farming, which uses huge amounts of energy, water, and this uniformity, it's, it's not the it's not the permanent fix that will feed the world. But we became complacent, and you know, again, we just kept tweaking the system to produce more and more calories. And now it's catching up with us, and we realise the planet we farming is far more complex and there are more complex interactions that we were unaware of and what what just one tiny example in the green revolution wheat that borlaug helped create there was a a dna trait almost like a hitchhiker gene um that traveled with it which became an entry point for a fungal disease that's now costing farmers billions of dollars a year so again there were fragilities frailties in um in those crops that we're now only beginning to discover yeah and and in terms of actually on that point uh those fragilities associated with lack of diversity extend to uh not just other plants but also uh animal livestock as well and i was i was pretty horrified to to find out that there are so few varieties of things like chicken and uh cattle uh for 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 milk and and if you just think about in the context of the current pandemic you know if there is a singular virus or bacterium that's going to affect uh a a type of um of species then you know there there is inherent vulnerability in that um and also the ownership as well of those varieties as uh, as well by by corporations. I wonder if you could you could speak to us a, a bit about those. Yeah, well, it, it's it's a parallel process really with the, with the um, disappearance of diversity in in crops and plants, um, and so we end up with actually from the 18th century um, uh, breeding of livestock. Uh, and a, a desire to have you know, faster growing, more efficient feed conversion, 
um, different traits, you know, more wool, thicker hides, you know, more muscle, for example. Um, and so that, that trajectory carries on into the 20th century. And when, when it becomes possible with, with more science to select, um, you know, e even um, e the, the focus in on these traits, we end up with, in, in the American dairy herd, uh, for example, ninety-five percent of the um, of the animals are one breed, Holstein Friesians. You know, there are hundreds of different types of of, of um, cattle breeds, uh, but because of the amount of milk that that can produce, the Holstein Friesian, um, which brings problems. You know, again, you know, disease can spread through the herd more quickly. Um, you ramp up the product productivity of an animal to the point where it becomes disease prone. In poultry, um, there was a competition in the um, after the Second World War in America, the chicken of tomorrow. So again, hundreds and hundreds of different um, poultry uh, types of chicken. This competition to try and find the fastest growing, um, meatiest bird results in two or three genetic lines, which produce the modern day poultry industry, which is owned by now just two companies. So again, this uniformity spreads around the world in crops, and it also spreads around the world in terms of livestock animals. And yeah, avian flu, um, the African swine fever, which hit, which almost killed off half the global pig population um, by 2018. Um, you know, a, a lot of scientists are concerned that genetic uniformity is. Um, something that we've lost that could have slowed down or prevented a lot of the spread of those diseases, even if it's just the case that the types of breeds we've created enables intensive production. So, you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of animals in one location because of the genetics of the of the animal enable you know them to live in close proximity for short periods of, of time because they they can you know, be grown so quickly um so it might not be directly to do with the genetic uniformity but the genetic uniformity enables the conditions to be created in which disease can spread mm, yeah yeah and th this um this uniformity extends to uh, sea life as well. I, I, I remember reading about um, salmon and it being a special kind of fish. I mean, it's it's pretty ubiquitous. I can go to you know, the local Tesco's or Sainsbury's now. I could pick up smoked salmon. I could pick up fresh salmon, all the different fillets. But you argue that it's uh, unlikely that we'll ever get to see, let alone taste, proper wild salmon. Mm. Is that is that right? Yeah, well, when I was growing up, I mean, what salmon of all kinds? I mean, it was an, an extremely rare um, source of food. Um, and, but in the um, and and across the river systems of the North Atlantic, thousands of different rivers would be um, genetic diversity. So each salmon would leave its river, um, change its body to become seagoing, feed in the North Atlantic for a couple of years and then return to its place of birth to spawn. And again, huge amounts of genetic diversity. What happens in the sixties and seventies is Norwegian scientists select from a small number of rivers to create a new type of salmon, one that can actually be confined in pens and you know, high feed conversion, um, grow quickly 
and that produces the salmon industry uh, today, in which you have hundreds of thousands of um, fish um, swimming around in circles, producing the, the the salmon that you see in the supermarkets. Um, and that that, in a sense, the domestication of of livestock and of, of animals that happened uh, in parallel with um, domestication of um, of the of the wild grasses in the Fertile Crescent. That happens during the Neolithic period, and in a sense, what we're seeing in the six, what we saw in the sixties and seventies, is a modern day version of that, of a selection process, and the domestication of a wild fish into a farmed one, and it could be that um, that's also contributing to the really scary decline in the um, wild Atlantic salmon population. Um, so we now realise that uh, they're leaving the rivers. So they're not coming back to spawn, and in some river systems, it's likely they will become extinct. And and it's now illegal to fish them in most river systems and out at sea because they are now on the brink. Um, but it could be that the farmed salmon are adding to the problems and the pressures on the wild population. So lice, for example, build up in the pens uh, on the west coast of Scotland or around Norway and can find their way into the wild population and weaken the wild population. And likewise, there are many escapes from pens. And so that particular, the genetics of the farm salmon, which isn't suited to an existence in the wild, um, when, when these pens break and thousands of fish escape, it could be that their genetics also find their way into some of the wild salmon populations and weaken them as well. So that combined with you know climate change changing the way in which um you know acidification of the oceans um the the feed for the wild salmon is changing as well as fish populations move towards warmer or colder waters so um it's almost as if the um the wild salmon is the you know it's it's the most important character really to understand what's happening um to this this diversity on land and at sea because it captures what's happening uh, in terms of the way we change rivers, we've polluted, we've created dams, we've overfished out at sea, we've created these domesticated animals that could be weakening the um, genetics as well. So in, in one fish, you can tell this big story of how humans have changed so much of the planet in a relatively short space of time. I mean... Listening to all these different stories and reading about them in the book as well, it just feels that we are at the point of no return and it's going to be near impossible to unravel decades of commercial agricultural techniques. And if there's anything that even during the pandemic uh, that, that it's taught us, you know, is is that politics, governments are tied by the economic uh, reasons to 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 make any changes, and it and it seems that you know bringing us backwards, almost not backwards in terms of the the environmental sense, but certainly backwards in terms of an economic output sense, is going to be a hard pill to swallow and almost impossible. I would say. What are your thoughts on actually changing practices that lead to more diversity, reduces reliance on monoculture? Is this actually feasible? Well, I do. I am hopeful, and I think there's a lot of optimism threading through the book because of the numbers of people I profile who are making a difference and saving a lot of the um, foods from extinction. Um, 
so if you, and also there's the argument that if if the green revolution happened in the 60s and 70s and borlog could be awarded a nobel prize for completely changing the farming system then um we, you know we can change it we we can change it again and we have more reasons now to do so and more tools in the toolkit to do so as well in terms of our what we now understand to be the importance of biodiversity diverse diets and and so on um it, it's not easy and there are huge amounts of economic interests uh involved in sustaining the, the, the current system but i i do think the conversation just in the last decade has changed so much about uh you know the word biodiversity you know go back 10 years it wasn't something that most people had come across outside of a you know kind of a scientific community and i think the same is 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 becoming the case um in conversations around food and farming that diversity um does matter resilience does matter uniformity homogeneity is a, is a problem um the you know the emerging science of the of the gut microbiome um there are so there is so much evidence building up that the um, that we need another paradigm shift, really, in the way we think about food and 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 farming. So all the reasons are there. How how that happens, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, we're we're seeing so much turbulence globally at the moment, particularly in in food production. What with Ukraine coming out of COVID, the you know the disruption disruptions of COVID and the and the economic recovery following on from that, um, food prices. You know, energy instability. In, in, you know, in in a sense, in a sense, that could ex- accelerate the transition towards introducing more diversity, becoming less dependent on a small number of regions around the world for most of our food, because of what we've learned about Ukraine, Russia, the Black Sea region. Um, you know, when, as I mentioned before, when things are working well, fine. You know. And you know, huge amounts of abundance can be produced. When things break in that system, it's disastrous, and which is why we've seen so many concerns expressed from the likes of the World Food Programme about people, you know, in parts of the world um, experiencing famine because of how inter- integrated this whole system has become. So, uh, and and obviously, you know, climate change, um, frosts in Brazil recently impacting on coffee harvests um drought in across drought across europe record-breaking temperatures in india um you know this idea that we can plant wheat everywhere of the same kind and 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 kind of create conditions where we can override these climate extremes is, is unrealistic which is why actually next year um after lobbying from the Indian government, 2023 will be the UN year of millets. Millets were a really important crop in India pre-Green Revolution. Tiny, tiny grains, huge amounts of genetic diversity. Um, when it comes to water usage, uh, you know, impact on soil, uh, nutrition, it's win-win-win. Um, but what happened is that huge amounts of millets disappeared from India and were replaced by the ex- ex- expansion of rice cultivation, Green Revolution rice, and the Green Revolution wheats as well. Recognition now by the Indian government that millets, a more traditional crop that disappeared with the backing of the UN, I think that's really significant that 
it's saying this diversity matters. These traditional foods are part of the future. Yeah, yeah. And as a consumer, what can we do? I mean, there is a, a predominant sort of uh, message out there that I, I think is it, it's becoming more pervasive that just go vegan or just go 100% plant-based and you'll fix the world's problems, which I personally think is a quite simplistic view of, of the world. What, what are tangible things that us as consumers can do on a day-to-day basis when it comes to choosing our food or uh, lobbying governments, uh, electing uh, officials? Like what, what, what can we do today to, to, to improve mm. the environment that our uh, children will inherit? Well, firstly, know the story. So as I mentioned at the beginning, I think all of this matters. Knowing the history, understanding why diversity matters. I'm not just saying buy the book, you know, but I'm just saying find a way of understanding this story, you know, because it, it really does matter. It will inform how you see the world and your understanding of food. Um, in the words of Slow Food, uh, become a co-producer. You know, try and get as close as you can to the source of your food. I mentioned a story in the there's a story in the book, um, a rice farmer I visit um, near Chengdu in southwestern China, um, who is saving this rare variety of nutritious rice um, in the middle of nowhere. And I'm, I'm there's a guy in his seventies, and I'm thinking, how on earth is he making any money? How is he getting his rice to market? He takes out his phone, you know, and he shows me this app, WeChat. You know, it's a bit like eBay, a bit like you know, wheat. Um, um, well, you know, it's a bit like Amazon or whatever. It, and he's selling his rice to people in Be- Be- Beijing and, and other cities. Technology is actually enabling us as consumers to engage with primary producers, farmers, or whatever, and we can support them and, in, and help save this diversity directly. Um, and we have the most selfish of reasons to do so because, again, you know, this idea of the gut microbiome think about the Hadza, the amount of diversity in human evolution, the evidence does point to the fact that the more diverse your diet is, the greater the diversity in your gut microbiome, the more beneficial that is thought to be for your physical and mental health. Um, and Professor Tim Spector, who also, like me, has you know, spent time with the Hadza and, and looked at their, um, uh, you know, the impact of their diets on their gut microbiomes, um, his data is showing that people who had um, fewer complications with COVID had greater diversity of, of plants in their diet. Um, but it, it, and, and I don't think it is about um, going plant-based or vegan. I think it's having that more holistic approach to food because um, my own view is that um, livestock have played an incredibly important role in farming and shaping landscapes for thousands of years uh, in terms of a fertility cycle. We shouldn't be eating huge amounts of meat, but actually part of that mixed farming system is incredibly important to the planet and, and to us if done in the right way. Whereas I think a lot of the new science to create another generation of, of um, protein foods, um, you know, kind of, the, the the meat substitutes um i'm not convinced that um the complexity of of nutrients micronutrients in the plants and the meats that we have 
been eating for thousands of years can be replicated. I just don't think we are. It's far too complex for actually us for <laughs> to fully understand and replicate in in a in a food production process. Yeah, yeah. Dan, as as part of that sort of drive to educate more of us on the realities, I think your your book is definitely something I would hundred percent promote and, get and advise everyone to get. Uh, I've got a couple of ideas for you to uh, uh, to sort of spread this message. So uh, first of all, uh, I hope you've already thought about it. You might already be in the in the in, in the throes of it, but have you thought about making this into a, a Netflix documentary? I have, and I've and somebody's somebody's I mean I, uh, approached me um, and and said likewise. I and I think with these things. Um, I know the failure, you know the the rate of um, pickup is 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 extremely um, rare for these things to happen. I, I do think, I mean, it's a book. I come from uh, a radio background. Visually, I just think it's such a powerful story, and I do hope somebody out there uh, ends up making it because it's such an important story to tell of this global diversity. So I'm completely with you on that one. And if you have any way of making it happen, I'd be very happy to <laughs> to discuss it with you. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think this is like just ripe for a documentary. You know, on the same sort of magnitude as um, as Michael Pollan's done in the past. I know. Um, uh, Doctor, I forget his name now. He's uh, uh, he's on the BBC quite a bit. He's done a couple of books Michael like the fasting diets and all that. that uh, Michael Mosley, yeah. So he's done some interesting documentaries as well uh, on the BBC. But I just see it because you've, you've, it's almost like you've written the script for a documentary already in the way you've structured the book. You know, you've done cereal, you've done wild food, you've done, and I just imagine like the, um, it would be so fun to make to visit all these different tribes, visit different really scientists, would. botanists, the, uh, the, the seed bank in the middle of like uh, the north, uh, is it the, the Arctic Circle? Is that where yeah, it is? Yeah, yeah, in the Arctic Circle, Svalbard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I think visually it, these these are gifts really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, just spread, <laughs> spread the word and let's see if we can get some um, uh, producers in uh, somewhere in the world to – to pick pick this up and make it happen. I'll, uh, I'll tell Netflix this has to for, happen for sure. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see that. No, tell, I'll tell Netflix. I'll tell Netflix. <laughs> if anyone knows anyone from Netflix, they need to make this show. And the other thing is, I reckon um, this is a uh, small to medium sized business idea, right? So, hear me out. Uh, what I would do is collect uh, a selection of all these different foods. Uh, people can buy them. Uh, online like a little amazon shop for all these different rare foods of the world part of the profits of that sale goes into uh, cultivating and help propagate the particular crops as well as the local farmers i would pay a premium to have a selection like a, almost like a little hamper of all these different foods from around the world in the knowledge that a this is helping my health in terms of increasing diversity and b it's also having a positive impact in the environment I think that would work. I think that would be awesome. I reckon Fortnum and Mason should do that as well. Look, they're, they're, I, I agree. <laughs> it's their book of the year. So yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Well, I want to. I want to see. I want to see you go on Dragons Den and pitch this. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> this is your. This is your book. This is. Uh, this is your business to, to to take the market. But no, I, I think it's brilliant. Honestly, I'm. I'm. I'm too busy. Make, I'm too busy making radio programs. <laughs> yeah. No, that's epic um 
And uh, just uh, give us a tease. This isn't going to come out until after Sunday, but you, you're making a program at the moment on the cost of living crisis. I wonder if you can give a, a few sort of insights into that and, uh, and what that show is going to be about. Yeah, so I'm uh, trying to get across what this means for people on extremely low incomes and you know, looking at some of the solutions. So the program hears from people who are um, getting together. Uh, the scene is a, is a pub in in Liverpool, and they're learning how to cook with um, slow cookers, uh, which, again, you know, it's about cooking skills, but also keeping their energy bills down. Um, and I also start to try and unpick some of the pressures in the supply chain. So I do look at why wheat has gone up. It's starting to come down uh, you know, in terms of price. Um, I'm hearing also stories of um people who who monitor the retail business as well about some of the strains and the pressures so it's it's looking at the causes and the consequences and a bit of the human story of um yeah at the moment 12% inflation but it's likely to go up in in when it comes to food prices it is pretty scary yeah mm yeah yeah well you and the whole food program team do such an incredible job um I, I regularly point to it in my my newsletter weekly about programs that i've been listening to and stuff so thank you so much for that service and uh i wish you the best with oh, the book and uh, yeah i will definitely keep an eye out for any producers and make sure that i thrust this <laughs> into their inboxes as well but i no, appreciate your time dan thank you so much wonderful I really do hope you loved listening to that podcast. Remember, you can watch everything on YouTube as well. Just type in thedoctorskitchen.com. Hit subscribe whilst you're there as well. It's a low cost, not, not low cost, no cost way to support the podcast. Uh, also, you can subscribe to thedoctorskitchen.com, uh, the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter every week. I send you a recipe, something to listen to, something to read, something to watch, as well as a funny joke at the end as well, just to put a smile on your face for the week. I really do hope you enjoyed that. Remember, you can check out all the links to the books, Eating to Extinction, all of uh, the articles that Dan's written as well. And the food program is a wonderful resource of information that you can find on the BBC website too. Again, all the links are on the show notes thedoctorskitchen.com. I'll see you here next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.